The Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Books Podcast. I'm Tim Haig and I've had the privilege of interviewing some wonderful authors for this series. The Books Podcast includes interviews with Martin Amis, Joanne Harris, Ian Banks, Salman Rushdie, Steve Richards, Howard Jacobs and many, many others. So subscribe now on your favourite podcast player to hear them. And importantly, please, please tell your friends. For this episode, I'm joined by Cathy Unsworth. I did originally want this book to be called Gotham, the Time of Thatcher, because I very much saw the music as a reaction to what went on within her time in office. Goths are all readers and they love the cinema and they take notice of soundtrack music as well. Very important. John Barry's got a big influence. I ask you, gentlemen of the jury, is this the kind of book you'd like your wives and servants to read? We're hearing Kathy's Garden, which is a treat, uh, to talk about her panoramic account of the goth music scene of the 1980s. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us on the Books Podcast. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for asking. So, Season of the Witch, the Book of Goth, is a hugely ambitious book. I mean, your, your canvas is enormous. <laughs> um, and we'll talk about what it takes in in due course. But to begin with, I want to say it sort of, it walks the line rather adroitly between um, a narrative history and almost an encyclopedia. Yes, I, I was hoping it would end up that way. I did want it to be a sort of pop cultural history, reference books, social history, um, and ref- yeah, guide your complete guide to the seven, the eighties phenomena that was goth, but everything that fed into that phenomena. That's well, what- I, I think it does. I suppose what we ought to do is start off with a definition for the for the purposes of the book, of of goth, um, <laughs> the music and also the, the, the cultural background because they cannot be separated. No, it's true. And it's one of the running jokes through the book that the word goth was very much a pejorative term when I first heard it um, uh, directed at younger people. Um, and it's a bit of a joke. Various people have claimed that they invented that word um, Ian Asprey from The Cult was one of them, and Abbo from UK Decay was another one. And obviously the romantic gothic era is referenced by early reviewers of some of these bands. Um, but I guess they are part of a tradition that is, I think, part of our cultural DNA. Um, the goth music of the 80s came out of punk and came out of bands who were very influenced by Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood, who managed to disrupt the music industry in what I discovered to be a very similar echo of the way Margaret Thatcher and Alfred Sherman, her political guru, had managed to disrupt the political system. Yeah, uh, you say that individualism was a was a key word for both the sort of Thatcher approach and for the for the for the goth musicians. Yes, it's very interesting. Um, I, Alfred Sherman and Malcolm McLaren shared. Certainly, maybe the first person who's bracketed these two figures. Well, it's interesting because I did a book about Jordan, who worked with Malcolm and Vivian. I did her biography with her, which led me into doing this really. And it was sort of, it was Peter York, who I always find a really interesting cultural commentator. And and he was a very handy person when I did Jordan's book because he'd written everything down at the time very succinctly. And he, he, um, talked about Alfred Sherman he described him as a man possessed with all these mad ideas which he then couldn't wait to go and share with everyone else and I thought 
yeah, you're talking the same language as Malcolm. He had all these mad ideas and they spread like a virus through the country with punk. Um, and yeah, Alfred Sherman, he started off very much being a communist and fighting <laughs> in the Spanish Civil War and, you know, being part of the Secret Service during World War II as And well. ends up writing speeches for Keith Joseph. Yes, and Keith Joseph can't sell his product, so he has to team up with a provincial shopkeeper's daughter, just as Malcolm had had to team up with Vivian, who, who could make his ideas into a saleable commodity. So... The music comes out of uh, punk, of course, but it's not punk. Not just punk, uh, no. There was a lot of the new wave that wasn't really punk. I mean, the, the, the yeah. jam and your Elvis Costellos were not punk no. either. Uh, and the, the, the goth scene um, follows, because punk is sort of late 70s, yeah. and it, it was very much its own, its own ethos, its own approach. And, uh, and the goths had something else going on. They brought something more to the party, didn't they? Yeah. That's why I, I did originally want this book to be called Goth in the Time of Thatcher because that's why I wanted it to start with her getting into power and end with her leaving office because I very much saw the music as a reaction to what went on within her time in office. But my publisher thought if I put her name on the front cover, <laughs> probably people wouldn't buy it and he might have a point there. But yes, I think... It's really interesting, and that's why every chapter's got a goth mother and a goth father. I love that, your goth <laughs> mothers and goth fathers. And of course, you, you, don't, you don't just mean uh, musically. I mean, yes, you've got Jacques Brel and you've got um, uh, all, all sorts of uh, music, but um, you've got Juliet Greco and Edgar Allan Poe, yes. Aubrey Beardsley and, yeah. and Percy and Mary Shelley. These, the, these are influences that are feeding into the whole culture. Yes. And it, it's not just a sort of a... A building on a, a, a musical platform. It's, it's a sort of atavistic cultural sucking, because that's another thing you say, that the, the goths read books yeah, goths in the way that the punks tended much less to. Yeah, punk was full of, of great ideas, and I think that it was a time when people did exchange a lot of books, and there were a lot of autodidact people. But most of them were very working class, actually. Um, and, yeah, goths are readers. They get inspired. The, er the earliest two bands, let's say, who I start with, Susie and the Banshees, who were followers of the Sex Pistols, they were very inspired by literature. They were very inspired by cinema. And so were Joy Division, who came to, into being after seeing the Sex Pistols in, in Manchester. Um, but were directly inspired. They, uh, you directly, know, yeah. You, you tell us that these bands were formed, uh, magazine, I think, and, uh, as well, yeah, formed explicitly as a result of seeing a particular gig. Yeah, they did. And it, it just, if they thought, if they can do it, we can do it. It just sort of gave them, it's an interesting, and this is why another sort of circular echo is, it's interesting, it's like the skiffle boom of the late 50s and the new wave of British cinema. And everything that went on then, this sudden window of opportunity for working class people, um, it very much mirrors that. And yes, our goths are all readers and they love the cinema and they take notice of soundtrack music as well. Very important. John Barry's got a big influence on a lot of these people. Bernard Herrmann has got an incredible influence. The Banshees of Magazine were both covering Goldfinger, which uh, Anthony Newley wrote with Leslie Brickus and, and John Barry. And, you know, so their music was almost a cinematic reproduction or cinematic reaction to what that landscape they lived in looked like 
And, and they built it from the ground up, don't they? Yeah. One, of the, one of the very amusing aspects of the book um, is you, you, you keep telling us stories of bands that start off and the bassist will have picked up the bass for the first time 24 hours earlier yeah. and they'll have people who've never played who say, right, we're going to be in a band. And some of them you know, clearly had musical talent. Some of them clearly didn't. And, you know, one of the things I loved, and uh, the very first Susie and the Banshees gig, you tell us, mm-hmm. um, the band included, I think, the guitarist who eventually ended up with Adam and the Ants. Yeah, Marco. And yeah. Sid Vicious on drums. Yes. That can't have sounded good. No. Sid Vicious didn't sound good on bass. And none of them, you know, apart from Marco, was, he was like the senior musician of those lot. And, and I think... You, Maybe he managed to keep it together. But no, they just improvised and they did the Lord's Prayer and they did a bit of Velvet Underground and they did whatever came to mind. It was just the fact they were doing it. That was the spark. That's it, isn't it? It's, yeah. it, it's not what they were doing so much as that they were doing it yeah, for them. exactly. They, were, they felt an energy, they said, and they just wanted. And I think the Banshees probably are the most amazing creative force in this book. They continue to be and. And it was so lovely that Susie's now doing her comeback tour. I didn't know that when we put her face on the front cover, but really that there couldn't have been anyone else but Susie on the cover. No, of course, because for her, for you at least, yeah. she is, she's the poster girl for God. Yeah, she is. And also she, she, she actually made a, a real impact. I have to tell you that there are dozens of the bands in this, this book that I have never heard of, <laughs> including bands that come from my hometown. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was born in Bradford. I never realised that Bradford had a, um, a, an actual music scene there when I a was really growing up. A really vibrant one, yeah. A new Model Army. Yeah. Never heard of them in You Bradford. had your own New Model Army and you didn't even know. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it, I played my very first gig myself in, in uh, Bailden. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, New Model Army could have been in the pub at the time. They might well have been. <laughs> in fact, I probably inspired them. Probably not. But actually, that does bring me to, to the next point I want to make. Um, I have the sense that, uh, unlike the sort of 60s, um, London and, and the 60s music scene, London didn't exercise the same gravitational pull that uh, uh, for, for the for the goths there were there were sort of thriving scenes yeah. in all of these provincial towns in Leicester and well, Manchester's a small yeah, city but there was. Uh, uh, Hull and uh, yeah. for God's sake Bradford and so, all these little pit villages between in that big diaspora between Leeds Wakefield there was a massive goth <laughs> presence um, and I found fa- I found it really fascinating the more I've done talks about this book and sort of even pieced together stuff that I hadn't quite realised when I wrote the book. But how, you know, one of one of Goth's enduring influences is William Blake, and of course he saw the dark satanic mills at the start of the Industrial Revolution. And then Justin Sullivan from New Model Army, he just mentioned, writes in his song 1984, he quotes from Jerusalem, and that's the minor strike, the end of the Industrial Revolution. So that's what I mean by this strange cyclical nature of... And, and you, you give us potted histories of all sorts of things in order to tie this, this up, to, to, to show why um, the, the music was taking these turns. You, you tell us all about the minor strike, you tell us about yeah. uh, Thatcher's uh, um, goings-on, and uh, every so often there'll be a, a couple of pages on... on <laughs> There's a potted history of Fenella Fielding at one point. But of course, what, but the thing is, I was I was thrilled by that. Kind of, yeah, bring it on. I want to know. Well, yeah, I do have a very vivid memory of my parents taking me and my very little brother to see Dougal and the Blue Cat. 
and my brother hiding under the chair in fear of the blue voice. And the blue voice is a premonition, that's Fenella's role, it's a premonition of Margaret Thatcher. She says, no other colours will be tolerated. Blue is beautiful, blue is best. I'm blue, I'm beautiful. And it is like, that's a crystal ball reading of what's to come. <laughs> and of course, Fenella has to be in there because of the carry-on screaming, mind if I smoke. Absolutely, she was, she was a, a, a perfect goth f- uh, image. Yeah. And imagery is important. Uh, Susie Sue would, <laughs> who would exa- again exemplify that because she always looked right for what she was. She looked amazing, yeah. And that's the thing. I had really good female role models growing up. And all these women, Susie, Lydia Lunch, Jules, Demby, um, Danielle Dax, they all looked the way they wanted. They went styled. Lots of the time they were making their own clothes, getting stuff from second-hand but shops. Something different was going on from the 70s. In the 70s, yeah. you had glam rock, you had your David Bowies and, 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 and Slade looking ridiculous. But that, that, was, um, that was pantomime costuming in a way that for the goths, they, they meant it somehow, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, that's a very good point, actually. Although I think they took elements from glam rock. I mean, Mark Bolan was a big favourite and Roxy Music and David Bowie as well. But... Um, but that's the activism, isn't it? That's yeah. that's having a, a sort of respect for uh, the things you grow. And you you make a point about all these uh, people having older siblings' record collections. Yes, and the mod- they, the- their modern Northern Soul record collections were very important as well. I think that that fed into a lot of goth music. And um, the reason the book Season of the Witch. Well, there's many reasons, but um, Susie's here. Her, her inspiration was Julie Driscoll, who was on the mod scene and who had the close-cropped hair and the big dark eyes and the beautiful voice and her version of Donovan's Seasons of the Witches. Yeah, a goth mother classic. But there's also an echo there of the, of, of the Bowie song, which has the phrase Season of the Bitch. Yeah. And you, you do that all the way through the, the book. There, there are little <laughs> echoes, there are phrases. When, when you make a reference to John Lennon being murdered, he was, you know, you, you suggest he, he, he met a warm gun outside the... Happiness is a warm gun. You do that all the way through, which makes it very rich. It gives it a, 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 a sort of a, a vibrancy and a, and a, 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 a texture yeah. that um, a, a simple, a simple uh, history wouldn't have. It's much more novelistic in a way. Well, yeah, it, it felt to me like it, it, when I started writing it, I thought it's almost like uh, Lord of the Rings in a way or something. Yes, it is. Yes, yes, Darkness it is. has yeah. come to the land and our goth heroes must fight the forces of darkness with, with their brand of darkness. Um, and to understand them, you had to also understand their influences, I thought, and the people that they threw out, they'd look to. And you had to see the full scope of this being a sort of artistic reaction to England's trauma, like William Blake writing his songs, like Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein in the year the, the sky went out and um, there was no summer. And... The Bronte sisters seeing the mill towns come come to where they lived, and you know, quite shockingly, when you re look back into that history of that period, the average age of a mill girl was twenty four. The average uh, death, you mean? Yeah, yeah, they yeah, would, yeah. That's how old they would be, and so you realise that these are the things that, at times of trauma, artistic people record these things and memorable ways whether in paintings in books in in this case it was in music but inspired by paintings and books and so I think it is kind of what I'm trying to say is it's always going to be with us but 
this was its particular fertile blooming was this period? I have uh, like a whole set of questions and I have a strong feeling that they're basically all the same question, um, just expressed in a different way. Okay. I want to come to the question of success. Um, I've mentioned that a lot of these bands I've never heard of. Yeah. Um, some of the bands I've heard of, but I'm not familiar with. And there were some hits. We all remember Susie doing a cover of the Beatles, Dear Prudence. Yeah. But there was, there, there's an enormous amount of music here that's not actually in the mainstream. It's not really yeah. in, the, uh, in the popular uh, consciousness. And I, I think I want to ask, were they chasing success or did they have some you know, sort of higher purpose that... Uh, I think some of them were, but I think the ones that I've put in this book, who I hope are the sort of really original people who did the best work, uh, I think they were all on a more personal mission. And it was... Mm. Um, most of these bands were operating, trying to operate away from that mainstream music business. And the indie label culture that had been thrown up by punk... By and, punk, yes. Yeah. Which was what drew a lot of these people from America, from Australia, to come to London because they knew that in places like Rough Trade, uh, Mute Records was probably, you were luckiest if you signed to Mute because Daniel Miller did a 50-50 handshake gentleman's agreement with you because he totally believed in independent music. That's what one of the successful people who's maintained their careers is Nick Cave. He's had somebody like that who cares about his art and isn't ripping him off. Whereas other people, like the Cramps, got slightly more unscrupulous record labels who, who did, you know, bottom line was their only concern. So the bands that flourished were The, the Cure also got on Fiction, which was a small label that he really looked after them. The Cocteau Twins, 4AD. There was Beggar's Banquet. There was a few... But they're, st they're still not sort of... This is it's still underground music. It's not. Yes. It's not destined for number one in the in the hit parade, is it? Whereas no, some of the the people from this, uh, you know, Mark Almond, yeah, uh, uh, the Damned, Dave Banian, and uh, and um, yeah, one or two others, um, Human League, the, the, Adam the Ants, of course. Some of them sort of did make that um, Tommy Steele leap from proper <laughs> pop music into show yeah. business, didn't they? Yeah, some of them did, and. Yeah, again, Mark Almond had a little indie label, Some Bizarre, with this guy, Steve-O, who people were really genuinely quite afraid of. He was a teenage maverick, and he got Mark signed to a succession of brilliant, you know, of, of brilliant record deals of, with a lot of money. He had somebody at his back. It's, it's kind of like, if you want to succeed in the music business, you do need somebody like that. The pro there's, I do go in quite a lot of depth about the producers on these records as well because, like Martin Hannett, probably the most famous example who almost tortured Joy Division to get the sound as crystal clear and as... And he used all these strange little foley effects like somebody like Joe Meek would have done back in the, the 50s, 60s, making his own strange sound. But that's why Joy Division, it sounds like that destroyed landscape of Manchester which you know at the time when you see films like Charlie Bubbles for example you you still see that Manchester has been left after the war it's in a state of total crumbling decline and, and of course to this day the north is being neglected yeah you know, the, the leveling up promises yeah. are 
lies. Indeed. So yeah, the, the, those those areas sort of outside of the southeast are still are still suffering from the same syndrome. Yeah, and mate, that's no wonder Goth was so fertile. Another thing that I do like to try and do a little bit of the psychogeographies of each place that I visit, as as you. And the fact that Leeds and Bradford had historically been against each other since the time of William the Conqueror, when, when Leeds was given to Ilbert de Lacy and, and so avoided the harrying of the North and Bradford didn't. And then in the Wars of the Roses, they're against each other. In the Civil War, they're against each other. But Goth and the Minor Strike brings them together in the end. And for you and for the book, these, these sort of historical, deeply embedded issues and, and, and history um, yeah. are, 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 are always a constants there, aren't yes. they? They come through. Indeed, yeah. I know, it's amazing. There's, that's why it's, I would say it's not a linear history, it's a series of interconnecting circles, um, like a Celtic interlace, which is quite suitable. As Quite a lot of Goths have those tattoos on their arms. But it is, yeah, and then... I think it moves fairly slowly through the 80s until 85, the end of the minor strike and the Battle of the Beanfield, by which time that counterculture of anarcho-punk, that really politicised stuff has been so badly smashed that then everyone starts looking backwards and that's when psychedelia gets rediscovered. And Doctor and the Medics did play a huge part in that by having that club, which followed on from the back club, back cave, which had been the the goth club where everyone, there's Banshee's soft cell, Einstein to Neubauer and the birthday party, all those people met in that club. And then it went on to be, I mean, it's on a great ley line, that club. It's on 69 Dean Street and it was Nell Gwynn's house to begin with. So you could write a whole book about that. Well, you sort of have. <laughs> and the book is <laughs> Season of the Witch by Cathy Onsworth, which is published by Nine Eight Books at £22 and it's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for talking to us. Thanks so much. If you've enjoyed this interview, subscribe now to be notified of upcoming episodes. In the next book's podcast, we'll be talking to film director and novelist Neil Jordan, who you remember made The Crying Game and an interview with the vampire, among others. And also in the offing is Mike Jay's new book, taking a look at how drugs made the modern mind. So please do click subscribe now. That was the Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. Email Tim on tim at bookspodcast.com, Twitter at Books Podcast, and Facebook at Books Podcast Tim.